all-round innovation. Now, if you'd snuck up behind me last weekend, you'd have caught me in the act of painting walls. Not the most glamorous of pursuits, but it needed to be done, so that now I can sit here and write in a freshly painted room. And importantly, one where even my clumsy brushwork doesn't show up in those unsightly streaks and overruns. Because I'm amongst millions of painters, professional and otherwise, who regularly mutter small votes of thanks to Richard Drew and his invaluable contribution to the world of painting and decorating. Masking tape. Now, this humble but essential innovation is getting on in years, but it still turns a profit for the company which originated it way back in 1925, the 3M Company. But it wouldn't have seen the light of day if official company strategy and policy had prevailed. It exists because of Drew's late-night and unofficial efforts in direct defiance of his boss's orders. Drew was working as a technical salesman, dealing with some of the company's biggest customers for their core product, sandpaper. He spent a lot of time visiting car factories in that newly growing industry, and in particular, the paint shops where sandpaper was used to prepare metal surfaces for painting. Now those paint crews were well aware of the good old days, when Henry Ford had simplified their job. Because back in 1909, he'd outlined a strategy for his company which concentrated on a single model, the Model T, which could be built at high volume and importantly, low price. Now doing this involved a number of trade-offs, not least in massively editing down the choices available to customers. It was at this strategy meeting that he reputedly said, any customer can have a car painted any colour that he wants, as long as it's black. That decision helped establish the Model T as a car for every man at a price that every man can afford. It brought the price down by 75% and put it within the reach of many people. But it didn't satisfy the market for long. People wanted more choice in models, in styles, and in colour schemes. All of which made life much more difficult for the skilled craftsmen in the paint shop trying to deliver ever more exotic paint jobs without slowing down production. The problem is that when you want to paint with more than one colour, then you need to cover up the area that you don't want painted, which is a clumsy, fussy business. Early attempts involved rags or newspapers, scraps of cardboard, but then they had to be held in place, making a one-man job into a two-man job. And attempts to solve this problem by using sticky tape to hold that mask in place also failed, because the solvents in the paint dissolved the adhesive in the tape, making the whole mask slip and slide all over the place. Which is where Richard Drew came in trying to sell a new kind of sandpaper which 3M had launched, which offered to cut down the dust created when preparing a metal surface for painting. He was in a paint shop and, hearing some choice language coming from one corner of the room, he walked over to ask what the problem was. 
to be given an expletive-filled tutorial in how not to mask up a paint job. What was needed, he was told in no uncertain terms, was a better adhesive tape which could actually stick and stay stuck. He went back to his office and began to tinker around with various formulations to try and make something suitable. His boss wasn't too pleased, ordering him to get back to his main job selling sandpaper. Nonetheless, Drew kept on with his quest. It took him two years and involved a variety of vegetable oils, chicle, linseed, various resins, glue, glycerin and treated crepe paper. But what he eventually came up with was a tape strong enough to stick to the surfaces but easy enough to peel off without leaving any scars on the paintwork. Despite its promise, his boss wouldn't allow him to buy the machinery he needed to produce it in quantity. So Drew turned his innovative skills once again to the problem, this time of financing the capital equipment he needed. He bought his machinery in small pieces, each of which cost less than the $99 that he was permitted to spend on an item of equipment, and then assembled the machine himself. This last act finally convinced his boss to let him go ahead, and also provided a lesson which later became a company mantra. The boss in question was called William McKnight, who went on to run the company and he made a key policy out of the experience. He said, if you have the right person on the right project and they're absolutely dedicated to finding a solution, leave them alone. Tolerate their initiative and trust them. And so 3M's bootlegging approach was born and it persists today, embodied now in formal company policy. Give people permission to play around. Don't control them too tightly. Let their natural creativity and entrepreneurship do the rest. Their 15% policy, one that allows employees to spend up to 15% of their time in pursuit of their own ideas and hunches, that policy has been responsible for thousands of product and process innovations a few of which, like post-it notes, have gone on to be breakthrough radical innovations. Now this masking tape story is a classic example of innovation happening below the radar screen, except that radar wasn't invented back in 1925. We know today that smart companies who care about innovation invest in the capacity for innovation. R&D, market research, future scoping and so on. Organised innovation, buying themselves options on the future, which is all very good, but maybe only focusing on the formal means means potentially missing out on what might be happening underground. Because by their nature, people are innovators, prone to experiment, tinker around, frustrated with aspects of their work, which they think a little hacking around the edges might help them solve. So why not tap into this as another source of innovation? Especially since it's actually not that expensive in terms of lost productive time. 
The origin of the 15% figure at 3M was William McKnight's observation that this was the time that people spent on coffee breaks, lunch breaks and so on. Times when they could do some of this unofficial innovation. It's not just the benefits in terms of the possible product and process innovations which it might lead to. It's also a powerful motivator, something which can help retain and inspire employees allow people time and space to explore, communicates a core company value. It's an invitation to tinker, to hack things, to play around. And it certainly paid off for 3M and other companies. Think of these examples. Sony's PlayStation, which started as a bootleg project by Ken Kutaragi, an engineer who secretly worked on a video game console with Nintendo without Sony's approval. Or HP's DeskJet printer. This was originally developed by a group of Hewlett-Packard engineers who wanted to create a low-cost inkjet printer for their own use. They used bootleg parts and software to build their first prototype, which they kept hidden under a tablecloth when they weren't using it. The first spreadsheet program. The software was developed by two programmers, Dan Brickling and Bob Frankston, who worked on their project without any formal support or funding from their employers. Eventually, they left the company and went on to found their own business, VisiCalc, which for a while was the market leader in the spreadsheet field. Or Google, whose 20% policy allows employees to spend time on personal projects. And this has led to several major innovations, including Google Maps, Google News and Gmail. Or Toshiba, who pioneered the notebook computer sector. This original idea was developed by a team of engineers working covertly for four years. They used their own laptops and software tools to create their prototype, which featured innovative elements such as a lightweight design, a long battery life and a high-performance processor. The project was initially rejected by management, but later accepted after some modifications. Introduced in 1985, it became the global leader in the portable computer market. Or the car company, BMW. It's got a long history of bootleg innovation, which has gone on to give them many success stories. For example, the Z1 Roadster was actually developed by a small team of engineers who worked on it secretly for four years. They used their own time and resources to create a prototype that featured innovative elements, such as a plastic body, retractable doors and a modular design. The project was eventually discovered by top management and finally approved for production in 1986. The iDrive, again developed by a team of engineers working on it without any formal mandate or budget, using their own laptops and software tools. They also conducted user tests with their own cars and with their friends. Once again, their project was initially rejected by management but later became a standard feature in many BMW models. And these projects helped legitimise what the company now calls U-boat projects, submarine projects, and recognising the value of the bootlegging approach. 
Professor Peter Augstorfer made a classic study of this phenomenon and reported it in his wonderful book with the great title Forbidden Fruit. And he gives many of these examples of bootlegging approaches. The term incidentally originated during the 1920s when the US government banned the manufacture and sale of hard liquor. The measure didn't have the desired effect of wiping out the industry and sobering up the country. Instead, it triggered a wave of illegal, but at times highly innovative ways around the problem, essentially driving innovation underground and out of sight. This included hiding illicit liquor in the inside of boots, bootlegging. Now, Peter Augsdorf argues that bootlegging can be seen as a form of learning under uncertainty where employees experiment with new ideas and technologies without formal approval or support. In other words, it's an unofficial extension of the R&D exploration work which companies need to do anyway. Importantly, it's an approach which can have other positive benefits for organisations beyond the innovations which its employees create, such as enhancing motivation and employee retention, and fostering a culture of internal entrepreneurship. But of course, it's got its dark side. There are negative outcomes, including wasting time and resources, violating ethical norms, and a very big challenge for those trying to manage it, undermining organizational control and coordination frameworks. Augstorfer originally wrote about this 25 years ago. But a recent article in the Sloan Management Review reminds us that such underground innovation is alive and well. Now, it's not a case of one size fits all. Their article highlights a number of different approaches. It also usefully identifies three archetypal characters who may be innovators of this kind. They call them missionaries, users and explorers. Missionaries have a particular interest in the development of the company. Their self-adopted mission is to improve things. Characters like Richard Drew would certainly fall into this category, seeing their own progress as being tied up with the fortunes of the company they work for and tapping into its resources to help them achieve their goals. User innovators are essentially frustrated in what they're doing. They develop hacks and workarounds to solve problems, particularly in the area of process innovation. And their ideas can often be surfaced through suggestion schemes and other mechanisms. And explorers are concerned with pushing the frontiers of what they do, sometimes going in directions which the company doesn't believe is possible. The risk here, of course, is that they pursue their ideas too far, detracting from their mainstream work and official company strategy. So, what makes underground innovation work? Well, it's not simply waving a magic wand Harry Potter style and casting the innovate spell. No. Instead, a number of things need to come together. First of all, allowing space, time, access to resources and so on. The exact amount, whether it's 15, 20 or an even higher percentage of time, is irrelevant. It's the signal that matters. It communicates that it's okay to experiment round the edges and that there won't be negative consequences for such action.
What appears to happen is that this represents a small amount of investment on the company's part, but it encourages employees to spend much more of their own time and initiative, often working long, unpaid hours in pursuit of their ideas. At the limit, as Paola Criscolo and her colleagues point out, there are good examples of bootlegging arising from contexts in which there's no formal space or time allocation, but still an underlying perception that it's okay to dig around a little. Another important feature is the need to give boundaries, defining the space within which innovation is possible and permission to explore there. You can see why. It wouldn't be a good idea, for example, to allow unlimited bootleg innovation in the formulation of sensitive pharmaceutical products. But that still leaves plenty of scope for such innovation outside of that. It's also important to establish a development pathway to pick up on those bootleg ideas and do something with them. There's no point stimulating lots of bootlegging behaviour if employees have nowhere to channel their ideas once they start to develop. In the case of 3M, there's a clear pathway which allows employees to take bright ideas and pitch for varying amounts of internal funding and resources to grow and scale their innovations. And that kind of functionality is increasingly built into innovation collaboration platforms. Many companies, such as Liberty Global with their Spark initiative have established employee entrepreneurship pathways in parallel to their suggestion scheme, essentially allowing them to take their ideas forward. Central to all of this is the need to communicate trust as a core value, giving bootleggers the sense of psychological safety about what they're doing, and importantly, letting them know that they're not going to be penalised for their activities. Otherwise, they're going to keep it well hidden. The other side of that is the need to reward and recognise. It's no coincidence that one of the things about 3M and their success with underground innovation is that people who've been involved in developing bootleg projects to fruition are then rewarded, not just with resources and money, but also with the opportunity to carry their venture forward. One of the two people involved in the development of post-it notes was Art Fry, who moved on to run the division for 3M. And the originator of the laptop computer within Toshiba similarly went on to run that division of their business. Now, of course, in all of this, there's a need to encourage intelligent failure. Because the downside of allowing people to take initiative is that they're going to make mistakes. Now, importantly, one of William McKnight's famous comments was that management that is destructively critical when mistakes are made kills initiative. And it's essential that we have many people with initiative if we're to continue to grow. Now, underground innovation has lots to offer. But as these points suggest, it isn't simply a matter of mimicking Google or 3M, allocating a percentage of time and then waiting for the magic to happen. Successful organisations make employee involvement a key plank in building their innovation culture. And that's something that William McKnight learned from his experience when he was trying to manage Richard Drew way back in the 1920s. 
1929, McKnight had gone on to run the entire 3M company. And he pulled together some of the experience he'd had into core principles on which their current company culture still depends. One of these was his basic rule of management. It's very simple to express, but it captures the essence of what we're aiming for. Delegate responsibility and encourage men and women to exercise their initiative.